and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. I'm your host, Emma Graney. This is the We're Working On It edition. I was trying to get a song to do with that. Work it. Working for the weekend. Yeah, I think we've used Taken Care of Business edition. Yeah. What about the Daft Punk song? I'm not going to sing it. I, I can't possibly digitize my voice. But I don't know that one. Oh. Do we I? need audio. No. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> this is the, we're going to stick with the We're Working On It edition. <laughs> As we clearly are. <laughs> and with me today, we have Dave Breckenridge. Hello. Hello. How are you? Fantastic. Excellent. Good to see you back again. Thanks. Paula Simons. Good morning. How are you? Good day. Good day. And Janet French. Hey. Who had a bit of a hasty morning this morning, but yeah. we won't get into that. So she's. Credit yeah. ratings. Credit ratings. All Credit the time. ratings. Um, so a few things have been worked on in Alberta politics this week. We've got David Egan, the education minister, working on a way to combat hatred in the province. We've got the right working on its whole unity thing. And the Workers' Compensation Board has finally released its review. Well, it didn't release its review. A review of the Workers' Compensation Board was released with 60 recommendations. 60. 60. 60 is a lot of recommendations. Sure 189 is. pages of nothing but WCB review gold. Right, Janet? Glistening, glistening <laughs> sparkling gold. You, you still look a bit uh, shell-shocked by the whole yeah, thing. Well, no, I'm not going to lie. I didn't read every of the 189 pages, but I read the executive summary. <laughs> And I read all the recommendations. We, sh- we, sh- we should explain that Janet, although usually playing the role of education reporter, is for this month playing the role of... Stuart. Stuart. <laughs> Stuart Thompson, our dearly departed Stuart <laughs> Thompson. Right. We, we, so we, we have dispatched Janet to the legislature. She's my for friend her down sins. there. So it, hey. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yes, I, I didn't mention that at all. Janet That's French cool. has been joining me down there. It's fun, isn't it, yeah. Janet? Yeah. It's so quiet uh, down there. And there might be... Um, there might be extra creatures roaming the halls of the legislature <laughs> yesterday, we found out. Yeah, they've taken all the gym equipment. Uh, there's a little gym down there for those who don't know. And they've taken all of the treadmills out and put them into the rotunda underneath. And I was like, what, are, you, are we running outdoors now? And he's like, no, there are creatures in there. <laughs> like, what kind of creatures? But he's like, bugs. What kind of bugs? And mice. Well, definitely mice. I said, well, and I said, well, at least if you see a mouse, you'll run quicker on the treadmill, right? <laughs> <laughs> he he disagreed and said they're fumigating. <laughs> so anyway, let's get into politics. <laughs> they're, they're fumigating the legislature for 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 vermin. I just yes, that's an image we all need to keep 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 close. So first of all, let's talk about um, the errand that. David Egan is on combating hatred, right? Something like that, a strategy or something? Uh, yeah. So, so he got this letter from the premier that says, okay, so we've started this project where we're looking at what other jurisdictions are doing about preventing racism. And we want you to also finish that work. Uh, just check out what other places are doing and does it work and what doesn't work. And also do kind of a consultation this summer and ask uh, different groups around the province some pretty specific questions about um, what they think would be effective and what that they don't think would be effective. And uh, some more specific things like, do they think that increasing the number of visible minorities in the public service or on agencies, boards and commissions would be an effective tack? Which I thought was an interesting question, because when I asked, well, how many visible minorities are there on the agencies, boards and commissions and on the public service, they went, hmm. <laughs> <I was laughs> so like, maybe they oh. could start with counting? Maybe. Oh. Well, we don't collect that data. Oh, that's helpful. <laughs> Sarcasm. You can't change the data if you don't collect it. Exactly. Well, no baseline, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's, it's fascinating because I am old. I am the only person probably in this room <laughs> who remembers uh, back in the wake of the Jim Keegstra affair and the Aryan Nations in Alberta, um, the government of the day uh, commissioned a commission on tolerance and understanding, which was headed by Ron Gitter, who was then a Tory MLA and would later go on to be a federal senator. Um, and Gitter toured the province and put together this whole kind of report about how we could improve tolerance in the province. Really? And, oh, yeah. This was And this was a huge thing. And it was very controversial at the time because, you know, that the government should actually set out to make people not be hateful. Uh, it was like, oh, big government. <laughs> That's getting in my business. <laughs> That's right. You and, can't tell me not to hate people. And Ron Gitter was a progressive. <laughs> I have an impression. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, everyone. I mean, Gitter, Gitter was a progressive, progressive conservative uh, uh, a Jewish MLA from Calgary. Um, and so he took a lot of hate and a lot of flack for doing this. Uh, but it did change. The focus there was, I, I think, largely on school curriculum and because, of course, this was in the wake of Keekster teaching anti-Semitic uh, hate propaganda in a social studies classroom with, uh, you know, with the defense of the ATA. And uh, I think, you know, here we are many years later, um, you know, almost 30 years later, and we seem to have come right back around to this. And it's interesting. I mean, Egan is the education minister, and at first I thought when I first saw the stories about this, the, the focus was going to be on schools and classrooms and curriculum. Mm. But it's much broader than that. And, you know, 30 years on, I don't know that a government committee is going to be any more successful at fighting hate than it was the last time. Well, that's what I said to him is like, what, what can you do? And he said, well, there's a variety of tools and education is one of those tools. But he also pointed to four separate um mechanisms in the law which makes me think like do they want the justice ministry to push for more prosecution on hate crimes which that's an interesting question and is that is that an effective approach i don't know has this all come up because of social media i'm sure that's part of it and the trump effect and you're seeing an increase in reported hate crimes in alberta i think alberta outpaced the national average by quite a bit in 2015 um it's a nearly 40 percent increase in reported hate crimes to police um, I want to point out the irony. I know that none of you can see. Well, there's a video to go with this, but it, it is it's for white people talking about whether a commission on hate is a good thing or a bad thing or what the government can do about it. I, I, I know that there's there's some irony there. And I, I, I it's hard to talk about this as being a bad thing because, you know, we all want everyone to get along and we want the province to be a nice place to live and we want the province to be a welcoming place. But I... A, I'm concerned that Egan already has enough on his plate as education minister with a controversial curriculum review, uh, a Catholic school board in Edmonton that can't seem to get along. And, <laughs> Speaking and, about and hatred. He's been, and he's been criticized pretty widely about not managing that yeah. situation very well. So what makes the premier think he's the right person to manage hate in the province? Um, I've seen some people suggest that maybe it should have been uh, an MLA who's a visible minority. Mm. I saw David Shepard's name come up as, a, as someone who should be doing this instead of David Egan. Um, I just, on Paula's point, what and what can the government do? We have hate laws. We have um, Alberta Human right, Rights Commission that deals with uh, issues of discrimination. I, you know, someone has suggested, well, the province should ban carding. Well, that's a good idea. Let's start with that. But overall, what is the commission going to do other than come up with a bunch of 
happy recommendations that make the government feel good and and make the people think, oh yeah, they did something about racism. You know, and yet I, I think this. I mean, this. I think this goes beyond people being mean on social media. I mean, we've seen an uptick in actual organized groups. There's, uh, yeah. you know, uh, Mac Lamaru of Vice did a very disturbing piece a couple of weeks ago where he. Um, infiltrated sounds a bit melodramatic, but where he spent time with uh, an armed militia called the 3% uh, who think that they need to arm against, you know, an imaginary Muslim invasion. Uh, You know, there's this hate group that was picketing outside of Lindsay Thurber High School in Red Deer a couple of weeks ago, and they had another small rally in Calgary uh, uh, just the other day. I think they're one in Edmonton, kind of fizzled. Um, But, you know, and then we've seen the Proud Boys uh, just the other day showing up at a Mi'kmaq rally uh, in Halifax, which is not Alberta's problem, but I'm guessing that the Proud Boy movement has its adherents here as well. So, I mean, this goes... Proud Boys sounds like a really strange kind of English musical genre <laughs> that maybe happened in the late 60s. Yeah. But, Sorry. You know, so there are, I mean, there are very significant tremors out mm. there that, that go beyond just, you know, the people you want, the trolls you want to mute on Twitter. So it's not that I think the province should just sh- shrug its shoulders and say, well, you know, nothing we can do about this. But, you know, to Dave's point, it's tricky to know what what you actually do that's practical, that will change hearts and minds. Because, uh, you know, in the wake of the Keekstra affair, there were all kinds of little grassroots things. I remember one of the most charming responses to that was that uh, the Jewish community who run a summer camp at Pine Lake called Camp B'nai B'rith gathered up all the kids of Eckville and the surrounding areas and brought them to Jewish summer camp so that they could meet actual Jewish people and find out that they were remarkably devoid of horns and tails. And, you know, the, <laughs> the idea was, you know, to it's easy to hate people when you don't even know who they are. So, you know, if there were actual efforts where you could take, um, you know, kids and introduce them to kids from the Islamic Academy or where you take people and, you know, have actual opportunities. God forbid. Are you talking about actual human interaction? <laughs> actual human interaction. Oh, I don't know how but this I, is going to go down at all. But, but it's, hard, it's hard to know how you do that on a grander scale mm. because, I mean, I think oftentimes – uh, people who are filled with hate and fear feel that way because they've never actually met or had a conversation with somebody mm. who, you know, on whom they've projected all of their anxieties. And if they actually met a gay person or a First Nations person or a Muslim person or a Jewish person or a black person, they might feel differently about it uh, than if they're just ingesting uh, secondhand hate. But in terms of the, I mean, that does raise a good point of how you foster that kind of interaction with people. And I look at it from, I know I'm looking at it from an Edmonton lens, and I think, well, we have that in the school systems. We have, for the most part, you go across sw- wide swaths of the city, a fairly diverse population of students and their kids of all backgrounds interacting with each other. Um, Can I say something potentially yeah. controversial about the school system, though? Yeah. And this is actually, this came up when I was interviewing uh, Ahmed. Abdul Qadir, Abdul Qadir. I'm really sorry, <laughs> I'm saying your name wrong. Um, he was saying, sure, there's a big diverse population of kids in high school, but they they clique, they cluster in um, into in race. The yeah. black kids hang out with the black kids, and so maybe they're all in the same classes, but that's not who they necessarily socialize with. And I'm sorry to say that in the 80s and 90s, that pretty much reflects my own high school experience. That we were very much, you know, the white kids hung out with the white kids. 
Really? Yeah. Oh, I'm saying we like never that. like. But you if know, you get to the elementary that, school level, there's not yeah, that. Maybe. Like I look at my son's class, and there's not that breakdown in my daughter's class, my daughter's kindergarten class. There isn't that kind of division among ethnicities of kids in that classroom. They, you know, they play. They're kids. They play. Right. Yeah, and which they, makes you wonder, like, when does it start, and how does it start, and is that a potential point for trying to? But then, how how do you? How do you force people to mingle or be friends? Or you see what I mean? Like that yeah. just seems contrived as well. David Egan has quite a job on his hands, and I'm really interested to see what he comes up with here because. Okay, so Ontario actually has legislation about this, which is one thing that they're. Uh, I think Mr. Egan's supposed to look at is: Do we need to go that far? So they now have a law that they just passed in the spring, saying Ontario will have an anti-racism strategy and it will be reviewed on a regular basis and. Um, so they have basically have like a strategic plan and I didn't read the whole thing. So uh, I can't tell you exactly what it says. But I think it's interesting that they've put that much high level effort into it. And but, that's something that Mr. Abdul Qadir says that he thinks that we maybe should look at, that we need we need outcomes that are measurable. Dave's chomping at the bit to say something here. A, a lot to make a plan. It doesn't accomplish anything <laughs> no, other than create more government work. It, well, it's, it's such a new plan that, you know, how they I can't tell you yet whether it's accomplishing anything. But Well... I don't, know, I don't know where they're going to go. Yep. It's bizarre. Well, it's not bizarre. Good on them for giving it a whirl, I suppose. If everyone was just like less, not as big a dicks to each other, this just wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> I would. Agreed. Agreed, right? Just right. And I just like just noted that as, as Emma said those words, managing editor Dave Breckenridge hardly flinched at all at the <laughs> he thought. He said that- agreed. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to move on now. Um, another thing that's been been worked on in Alberta politics is uh, is the right and their whole unity thing. Graham Thompson, who would usually be here on the podcast, is out traipsing around the province right now in rural Alberta talking to folks about their thoughts on unity. Um, and that leaves us to talk about what exactly is happening here. Now, of course, there's going to be more happening, so I don't really want to spend an awful lot of time on this. But... What's well, something that's been interesting to me is that Derek Fildebrand and Doug Schweitzer. So Doug has declared that he's going to run. He's running for leader uh, of the imaginary non-existent of party. the non-existent as yet non-existent party. Exactly. Derek has said he's going to consider it, but right now is fronting an organization called United Liberty. United Liberty. I, like, it's, it's just like it's like word salad. I mean, what is that? <laughs> what is? I mean, what? Like, who's taking away his liberty? It, it, so anyway, he he and Doug have both come up with a lot of policies. But Brian Jean and Jason Kenney have both said, no, 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 we are not coming out with policies until the, until the party actually exists. So it's kind of an interesting dichotomy here. What do you reckon, Dave? Like, I, are, they, are they doing the right thing, do you think? Who? Uh, Kenny, who? And, Kenny and Jean or, or No, Phil Brand and Schweitzer by, by releasing these policies right now. I think that because they are considered dark horses or long shots, they don't have a choice but to try and stake out some territory. Even yeah, though everyone's yeah, going to be playing in the same sandbox, they need to stake out a part of that sandbox for <laughs> they themselves. They want their bucket. They want their, their bucket of sand. Um, <laughs> Fildebrand wants his end of the nanny state, and we're going to cut spending on all of those things. He, he has a very libertarian yeah. bucket. He wants the right to throw yeah. sand at you until until it gets in your eyes. And then and then Schweitzer, no one really knows who Doug Schweitzer is. He yeah. doesn't he doesn't have the same kind of profile that Derek Fildebrand has from being the Alberta director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and then an MLA for the last couple of years. Um, Gene and Kenny don't have to do that. In mm. fact, and as leaders of their party, they're respective parties right now they have a more important job of trying to sell that unity vote to their members and 
that does free up space for Fildebrand and Schweitzer to to start bringing out policy, but it also, if either of them want to stay in that race long term, they need to make a splash now and kind of cement their names in people's memories. Yes, what he said. <laughs> Now, the the vote itself, um, I was talking, I went to a Kenny Town Hall there the other night, and um, and actually I did ask Jason Kenny and, um, and Brian Jean as well, like, why haven't you guys released policies, and do you agree with, well, I asked Kenny, do you agree with um, the idea of releasing this soon? And he kind of went, well, sure, he can do what he wants, but no way, I'm, no way am I doing it because we just really need to get this vote sorted. Well, and plus, I mean... They are the leaders of parties. Those parties already have policies. If they start coming out with different other policies, it's going to confuse things. I mean, and presumably once there is a party united, if such a thing happens, Mm. they will need to come up with a platform that consolidates and, you know, compromises the views of those two parties. So, you know, but Dave's right. For for the outsiders who have nothing nothing to lose, not that Fildebrand's exactly an outsider, but, you know, somebody who needs to make a name for himself... Uh, this is a way to differentiate themselves as products in the ideological market. Well, and Derek Fildebrand told me when I asked him the same question that he doesn't think the PCs and Wildrose have done it. Well, he thinks his party has put it forward some policies, but the PCs haven't. I would actually tend to agree with him on that. What 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 policies can you even think of that the progressive conservatives have? Well, they... W- <laughs> well, because then we all see going, you, you look back uh, governing to, for 44 years. Yeah, you look back to whatever Jim Prentice put forward in the 2015 election and then... Um, Kenny's a completely different cat. And it's better for them to be a tabula rasa because they're about to blow themselves up. I mean, if Kenny gets his wish, there will be no progressive conservative party. And therefore, the progressive conservative party, you know, what's the point of having policies if your party (laughs) is about to implode? And I think the other problem is that how is party, how is policy in the new party, should it come together, going to be developed? Is it going to be grassroots led? Is it going to be top down from the leader? Those are still things that we don't know yet. And so, you know, for a grand policy discussion now, and don't get me wrong, I appreciate Derek Fildebrand talking about booze policy. It's one of my (laughs) particular pet issues to talk about, but um, (laughs) I, I think that we sh- we should wait and see what the new party looks like and how they decide they want to develop that. If they even if they come together, if they do come together, because there's a chance they won't. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and you know, and if they do come together, there's a huge risk if Kenny comes across as a top-down policy guy. These are the policies of my yeah. party of my party that I just made up. Um, you know, he can't afford to do that if you're trying to convince 75 percent of Waldrose voters, uh, Waldrose members, to endorse the idea of of bringing the parties together. You know, I have to say, Graham Thompson's been writing like a column every two days about about this, <laughs> whether these parties can merge to the point where I'm like, yeah, just let's wait and let's see what happens <laughs> and then we'll know. Uh, I'm prepared to Schrodinger's cat, um, the, the United Conservative Party. Uh, I will check inside the box after the vote <laughs> and then I will know if the cat is alive or dead and then I will have an opinion. <laughs> I have a question, actually, about oh, God. to to what <laughs> to what degree is the coup d'état factor an, an issue here? It, like, there's there was some sort of um, you know fussing on social media a couple weeks ago about you know various agencies encouraging people to to join the Wild Rose or join the PC or join both, um, and then some sort of conspiracy theorists 
postulating that this was because they were going to try and blow it up from the inside and thwart the merger. So how, how big of a factor is that in reality? Well, both Jean and Kenny told me this week that they have definitely heard that that's happening, but they don't think it's happening on a large scale at this point, I which see- I would tend to... I, yeah. I guess I was seeing tweets as as late as yesterday saying I just got my membership I'm ready to vote yeah. against is the it, merger is it large scale though like I don't, I don't know, know. I don't know I don't to, think and it's worth keeping in mind that people can have membership to Wild Rose and PC and they can, and then they they can, can vote, vote twice they can mm-hmm. vote twice exactly which is what everyone's been encouraged to do right now not everyone obviously anyone who's interested in unity is being encouraged to do right now but yeah, yeah so but, I think I think it is happening Janet to answer your question but I don't know to what extent, which is interesting because it has happened in the past, you know, with the Redford leadership battle. It was highly organized groups of people buying PC memberships so that they could vote for Alison Redford to be the leader. And then the theory was, you know, hold some kind of sway. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if it's happening to a, a large extent right now. But I, I love the narrative that somehow that's insidious or sinister. I mean, that's, that's bum, bum, bum. I mean, that's how it's supposed to work. Right. I mean, if I mean, this is this is, is what happens. People buy memberships and they vote. I mean, it's it's democracy. If people if the majority of Wild Rose members don't want to merge with the conservatives, then it's not evil if that's how they vote, surely. And if you know, and if there's still a, a core group of progressive conservatives who want to buy Wild Rose memberships uh, in order to stick a stick in the spokes. That, that's exactly how it's set up. I mean, it's... it's oh, no, of, but NDP supporters buying a Wild Rose membership so that they can vote, no. That's well, what people are kicking up a stick. I mean, about. that is how the system works. I mean, there's nothing stopping them. No. It's perfectly legal. Yeah. Go for it. You know, fill your boots. I don't know. I, but, you, I mean, weren't there people on the right just saying that just the other day? It was That was the whole coup d'etat speaking, you know, that, yeah. that coup d'etat logic, you know, we're going to buy up uh, NDP memberships and vote Rachel Notley out. I mean, <laughs> I... Yeah. Well, what what actually appeals to me about this... Schrodinger's cat. I'm not talking about this. <laughs> I'm not talking about this until they vote. But what appeals to me then is that you've got like NDP supporters and you've got hardcore wild roses actually coming together over the same issue that they don't want unity. And I think that's really beautiful and poetic. Mm-hmm. See, maybe the non-hatred thing can work. <laughs> I was going to say, like, Egan needs to pay attention to this. Yeah. Uh, finally, I just want to move over to the Workers' Compensation Board review. <laughs> Janet's eyes just opened and went, because ah! it really was. It's giant. The thing, it's massive, right? Have you seen a printed out paper? I have not yet? seen a paper edition. I've just seen a very large PDF. 186? 189 pages. Sorry, 189 60 pages. recommendations. Now, this was quite some time coming, wasn't it? Yeah, so it started in March 2016, mm. and uh, the government's rationale at the time was, well, nobody's really had a good hard look at WCB for 15 or more years and anyone who has ever worked in a newsroom and picked up the main line to the phone knows (laughs) how many people have trouble with WCB claims because when I worked at the Star Phoenix in Saskatoon again different province different you know rules but uh, we probably had one WCB call a day and we had to make a rule that we just weren't going to write personal stories because they would end up being really one-sided because WCB could never tell us their perspective on a on an individual case right Mm -hmm. so it was you know obviously there's systemic issues um so now this wasn't just looking at how claims are handled but that was one part of it this is a very big picture look from like how are the finances and how are the leadership and there's lots of kind of 
uh, you know, technical recommendations about how the board should run its committees and that kind of stuff. But one interesting recommendation is I didn't realize that the CEO of WCB is on the board. Yeah. So that's a, a, a governance quirk that they're recommending that that stop, that the CEO no longer be part of the board. Because usually it's the board employs the is CEO. The, is the boss of the CEO. Yeah, so that's Why is curious. it that way? Was there any No, I, I don't know. Everyone I don't just know. goes, well, that's just Yeah, not sure. Um, I'd have to look more into that. But So some of the other recommendations were, uh, and this was this was the big disappointment, I think, to... I don't know if it was a disappointment to employers, but it was certainly a disappointment to the Alberta Federation of Labor, is that the Alberta AFL has said that um, they are very concerned that the way that the premiums are structured, so the amount of money that each employer has to pay uh, to buy into WCB, is structured based on their record of infractions or how many claims they have. So if you're not filing claims and you work in a lower risk industry where you know people sit in a desk and not up a ladder, then your rates are lower. So they argue that there is a culture of claim suppression where employers are discouraging employees from filing claims so that their rates don't go up. And so the AFL was really hoping that there would be some more deeper look into this and some guidance about how the rates are set. Now, the report has a lot of discussion about how rates are set and comes to the conclusion that they are, this is so complicated and so loaded that they are not equipped or qualified to be doing this. And so they actually recommended another commission Come along and look just specifically Hooray. at the issue of setting rates because it's the range is huge. So the way they calculate it is, is um, they pay a certain number of cents or dollars per $100 on their payroll or however much money there is on a person's paycheck. And so and the, the range, it's approximately a dollar two per $100 on, on average in, in Alberta. It's the lowest in Canada um, by far. So Newfoundland is like two fifty per hundred dollars where Alberta is way down at a dollar and the range in Alberta is like 13 cents per hundred dollars to like five and a, five fifty per hundred dollars so big you know spread there and so uh one thing that the AFL has also argued is that employers are so fixated on keeping those rates low and the lowest in the country that um the WCB is therefore short on money and artificially suppressing claims or artificially you know denying people benefits so that they can keep the books balanced and they are keeping the books balanced that's one that's one thing the report notes is that their financial stewardship is excellent but then you get then you get nickel and dimed right then you get people who are trying to file claims who you know i was not to out one of my friends but i was talking to her yesterday about this and she's like every time i called they would ask me over and over again how did you hurt yourself tell me the story again so it seems like there's a real um doubt or um you know questioning of of employees or skepticism about whether their injuries were obtained at work and and another one of the recommendations says if on a balance of probabilities if there's equal evidence the injury could or could not have happened at work the worker should receive the benefit of the doubt and that that appears to not be what that is that is not what is happening today according to this report that it's that they're so obsessed with sticking to their policies and following procedures that they're they've lost the humanity of handling claims for people who are in a very difficult time in their life that was a very long ramble and i'm sorry yeah no that was great i mean because janet is right i mean I began my career, you know, I think one of the first stories I, I did here at the Edmonton Journal was, you know, they, they the editor sent me down to deal with guy who'd shown up with his WCB story of horror. And, you know, we 
I covered here the the hostage taking at the WC building where, you know, a man who felt he'd been denied his benefits, you know, came with a gun and took hostages. And uh, it was, you know, a very lucky thing indeed that nobody was injured in that, you know, nobody, there were no serious medical consequences to anyone as a result of that hostage taking. So the frustration is very, very real. I mean, you know, when when we had a flood in our basement, the insurance company was super nice um, because it was the city's fault. So um, they were happy to pay us out. But it's not like when you file a WCB claim that you, I think most people don't feel the WCB is on their side looking out for them. Mm. And, and yet, um, I've also talked to plenty of people who, after I listen to their story, I think, yeah, no, I think the WCB made the right call there. It's very difficult when people are frustrated and in pain and worried about their finances. And, you know, especially for people whose identity is very much tied up in their work, the idea that they can't go back to doing the work that gives them their sense of self and their sense of purpose. Um, It's a very difficult situation that the WCB often finds itself in. But certainly uh, the concerns that the WCB doesn't put the worker first are long-standing. You know, my, my whole career as a journalist, which we've already established is much longer than any of you. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, this has been a never-ending concern. So, I mean, if the if the New Democrats can tackle this in some kind of meaningful and useful way, uh, that might be um, not quite as difficult as ending hatred, but it'll be up there. I don't know what I can say that, that hasn't already been covered, but I will say that, yes, if you were to break down all the calls to that I've answered in my career, WCB concerns have been the number one call over Notley, over the paper sucks, over which which is a lie anyway because the paper is awesome. My yeah. <laughs> but it is a problem. I think that reports probably long overdue. I don't necessarily agree uh, with the idea that premium shouldn't be based on claim history, like car insurance or home insurance. If you're in a high risk position or there's more claims. Um, maybe the government could do something around the notion of claim suppression, that there could be penalties for not filing claims, things along those lines. But if there's not enough money in the system to properly deal with people's claims, maybe premiums need to be looked at. I'm not saying that they necessarily should. I don't know the ins and outs of the system. But it is a big problem that that needs to be fixed because it is something that is impacted, I think. Everyone knows someone who's had an issue with WCB, and that shouldn't happen. Politically, I have though. to say, the other day, a magpie flew into our newsroom, <laughs> and, and uh, Dan Barnes is sports, a hero. Dan Barnes, sports columnist, eventually scooped up the magpie, yelling, "Don't bite! Don't bite!" and threw <laughs> threw the magpie out the window. <laughs> and, and this terrible thought went through my mind. First of all, I'm very glad that Dan Barnes was not injured in this in this attack of the, the killer magpie. But I thought to myself, suppose Dan Barnes did sustain an injury and had to file a WCB claim because this was a workplace injury. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen the paperwork for I was attacked by a bird in the newsroom. <laughs> that would be fantastic. And now let's move to our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery, Dave. The one thing that I think that people should take a look at today, um, I, I ran in the NP2 section of the journal. The Canadian Press has done a look at the Jordan decision one year later. And you've heard the words Jordan decision or seen the words Jordan decision in uh, news coverage over the last year. And some people have a sense of what that is. Some people don't. Basically, it was a decision by the Supreme Court uh, that said that there need to be limits set on 
how long someone can be uh, awaiting trial before the trial goes ahead. And so the Canadian press has taken a look at the implications of it, how many uh, cases have been thrown out because of it. And I think it's a really important to... Uh, People don't always think about the judicial system unless they're dealing with it or it impacts them. Um, and this takes a look at uh, the the implications of what it means. And, and I think that it's an issue that's not going away in Alberta anytime soon as we try and deal with uh, judge appointments and court delays and crown prosecutor uh, hires and, and all of those things. Yeah. Paula? I'm going to recommend uh, in all of the Omar Catter coverage, which to which I have not added yet this week, um, uh, the one piece that stood out for me was a really great essay by Colby Kosh, also uh, from the National Post. Uh, not that we're all home teaming this week, but um, no one is ever going to accuse Colby of being a bleeding heart liberal lefty. And that's why I think it's really interesting to read his take on why uh, the compensation for Cotter may be justified. Fair enough. Um, I'm going to recommend a book that I just finished. It I I started reading it, and then I spent the next five hours reading it, staying up to one o'clock in the morning. Maybe a bad decision, maybe not. The Underground Railroad, which of course was a big bestseller, but I hadn't read it yet. And it is a fantastic historical fiction um, that tells the story of yeah the un- Underground Railroad in the States. It's kind of horrific in points, and it's really, really good in terms of making you think about um, what exactly people faced. You guys all chose really serious things, so I'm going to yeah. choose a silly summer thing that made me laugh out loud. Excellent. Which was a profanity-laced... Um, I like it already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Emma sold. Uh, profanity-laced kind of essay from Vice about which provinces are the most sensitive. Oh, yeah, and Drew Brown wrote guess, that. Guess who's on top? Alberta. We're number one. We're Alberta, number one. Alberta, Snowflake City. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I found it. I, I, don't, I don't know if all these stereotypes are true or not, but it did make me laugh heartily. And what more can a woman ask for on and the re- internet? And really, I, I, had to, I had to laugh. Um, the Calgary Herald wrote a sniffy piece about how Justin Trudeau wasn't coming to the Stampede Parade today because of scheduling problems sweeties it's the g20 he's at the g20 right do you do you really think he should blow off meeting with putin and trump and merkel and everybody so he can ride a horsey down the streets of calgary yes paula god no he should wear chaps to g20 (laughs) clearly it's the g20 today while the parade is on he's not just you know at the lake (laughs) no he hates alberta come on he doesn't does even think we're part of Canada. No, exactly. Hey, guys, thank you so much for joining me. Once again, Paula, you're just sitting there chuckling. <laughs> Paula's going to keep laughing about this. Dave, Paula, Janet, and Sean Butts, who is here to film some of this and put it online at edmontonjournal.com, where you can find all of the past episodes of the Press Gallery. You can also sign up to SoundCloud, iTunes, and TuneIn Radio to get all the latest episodes, and they come directly to you. It's all very exciting and technologically advanced, I suppose. Um, hope <laughs> technology. That was Janet, not me. Yeah, technology still amazes me. What can I say? Hope you join us this time again next week at the Press Gallery.